Oh, that flavor is awful, though. Ugh. Raspberry apple magic fun dip. Tastes like ass. I'm gonna eat again, though. Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode 70. I'm Rory, and I'm joined by the other nerds. Carissa. Hey, uh. Matt. Hello. And Ryan. Hello. Together we take on this week's... <laughs> Together I fuck up the whole speech one sentence in. <laughs> <laughs> reading fucking token meathead can't read together we take on this week's comics each week we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them this is a review show so there will be spoilers if you don't want to hear the spoilers take a break now go read your week's books and come on back each week one of us picks their favorite book and that's our pick of the week this week i am that nerd this week the pick of the week goes to guardians of the galaxy number 19 our Woo-hoo. companion song is crazy on you by heart because let's take a listen I will say Rocket does have some crazy eyes in this one. Okay, so this week we got Guardians of Galaxy number 19, Marvel Comics, written by Brian Michael Bendis for the last time. Pencils and inks by Valerio Shitty. I yeah, don't... it's always that, yeah. Totally shitty. Colors by Richard Isanove. Now, the reason why I chose our song is for multiple, multiple, multiple reasons. First of all, we find out that Thanos is teaming up with a bunch of other, basically like the big warlords. Brood queen the the badoons the annihilus wave all those fuckers out in the galaxy that want to just take over everything ruin everybody's day so they team up with thanos because they want to have his blessing and his hand behind them taking over earth well initially they want to destroy earth but thanos is like no take it over i want to make him beg he's got this big grandiose plan of just like slowly crushing the will of earth the other warlords are like uh why don't we just destroy it because that's what always seems to go wrong in all the other plans he's like nope nope that whole pride before fall <laughs> nope I want to make them beg that's how we're doing it they need to be conquered and they're like but maybe we could just no that's what we're doing god damn it so that was part of it of course when you got the mad titan involved and then you also have of course rockets still trying to get a ship and it turns out they have like this alien shipyard that's like top secret guarded by shield and later on in the story Captain Marvel takes him out there to build his own ship and he gets this crazy look in his eyes and also not to mention when Gamora the look on her face when she gets her meet up with Thanos. There's all kinds of crazy going on here. But anyways, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. So we've got this big plot to take over the Earth, and then Rocket is bitching about being stuck on planet Earth. They're having this big, long discussion, and then also, because they're on this helicarrier, the alarm goes off, everybody's being called to battle stations. To cut it short is that what happens is that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this huge fleet of alien spaceships just fly into Earth and Thanos starts off his little speech. And it kind of sounded like a used car salesman thing because he's like, uh, just so you know, we're just here to bring you into the galactic species and you guys have come far enough and, you know, we think you're ready, so... You're not alone. Yeah, it's all going to be good. You know, you're going to keep your stuff and we're not going to take anything from you. Your governments just have to kind of like stand off to the side as we come in and murder the Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> so and then, of course, Thanos just drops right in on this helicarrier. Like, doesn't fuck around at all. Battle ensues. Carol takes Rocket off the space graveyard. And then, yeah, big, huge fight. First starts off with Drax versus Thanos. And he's coming out of the shitter. He wasn't prepared. And as Starler said, he didn't have a plan. Yeah, definitely not. That look on his face is like, all right, I've been waiting. And then he just kind of unceremoniously gets chucked off of the flight deck of the helicarrier by Thanos. Everybody just starts tag-teeing him because we've got Venom there. We've got all the Guardians minus Rocket. We've got Kitty Pride there, who drops him off the helicarrier also, which was kind of funny. I think she phases him through the helicarrier. Kitty Pride always threatens to phase her hand through somebody's skull and then re-solidify it to kill them. Uh-huh. This might be the fucking time to do that, you know? I don't know. I kind of appreciated the drop off the helicopter. The tag team with Ben, I thought that was great because I think it really gave the thing a time to shine for his clobber in time. Oh, definitely. Especially with the Bill fucking Murray quote going on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, from Caddyshack? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's that was great. Good. Ben 
knocks the shit out of him and sends him off of Yankee Stadium and out into the streets. Meanwhile, everybody's watching from their ships as Thanos is basically getting his ass hammered by a bunch of different superheroes. They're all like, hey, completely lost it. We're going to have to go with plan B. And they're asking for the Brood Queen to give the word. And out of nowhere, another voice comes in and is like, the Brood Queen will no longer be joined in your alliance of blood. And of course, who is it? Angela pops up out of nowhere. I love that part right there. It's pretty badass. <laughs> that was hella badass. She's already murdered the Brood Queen. She tells them all, I've got this planet covered, and if you guys don't get the fuck out of here, I'm going to open up all of Asgard and all the ass whoop that comes along with it. <laughs> and so they all scatter at that point. So then back down to Earth, we have the continued ass whoop of Thanos, and Gamora shows up. She's got the look of doom on her face and thinking about all of her childhood memories, but in a sudden twist of fate, she rather than murdering him, just kind of looks at him and says, eh, it's good enough just watching you crawl like this because he's completely decimated at this point. And so everybody kind of high fives and they chain up Thanos. He looks a lot different out of his armor. Yes, he definitely does. And then the Guardians got their ship because Rocket at one point or another shows up with a ship. <laughs> it says Rocket rules on the side. Yeah. <laughs> What's cool is when he goes to the graveyard, he doesn't just build one ship. He builds an entire fleet that he yes. like has said that he's like rigged up them all to go like thermonuclear of Badoon and most people don't get the hell out of there. Yeah, somebody just crazy mm. enough to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's got the junkiest piece of shit spaceship. I love it. <laughs> so I'm summarizing this a lot, but this issue was just all kinds of badass. I think we all can agree that Brian Michael Bendis has been tremendous, and I'm sorry to see him leave. This was one hell of a way to finish it, his run in the, with the Guardians, and I've been a huge fan. I'm also a huge fan of the fact that all the Guardians have all this Earth junk food when they're leaving. <laughs> Take the one good thing from Earth with them. There was a reference at one point in there. They're like, you can kiss your In-N-Out burgers and voodoo donuts oh, goodbye that was star lord oh i love that that was my favorite part the art in this is just so fucking good it oh, really yeah. is awesome yeah it is the best shitty art i've ever seen <laughs> absolutely the pictures of thanos where he's being like all badass and dramatic are really cool and then the pictures where each like guardian goes to fight him and like beat the shit out of him and get the shit beat out of them in return those are really really well done too i kind of like the setups where you're going through the everyday is little setups where you see how everyone else is seeing the invasion come in you see Groot at Central Park and he like takes off you see like Flash like in a job interview there's one where Kitty and Ben having like a heart to heart which my only complaint about this issue that I actually had and it was really hard to find one so at the end when they're leaving you're just getting the core as it is Guardians when I say core I mean like the movie Guardians exactly the movie Guardians that people will know are the ones that are leaving and carrying on I feel the reason that Ben is staying is not as believable as it should be I mean he was really torn up when they got stuck there he wanted to be with that girl now he's just like oh we all have to leave somebody behind seems a little too contrived whenever you end a run you have to put everything back on the shelf the way you found he has to set the stage for the next right there are some really funny parts like Thanos showing up and drax coming out of the bathroom yeah so I haven't read when they got grounded. Did nobody just think to say, hey, Ben, I know you guys made probably 50 or 60 spaceships. Could we borrow one? <laughs> Rocket was going around trying to ask everyone. Like, I just find it impossible to believe that there's not a Quinjet sitting around because I know the fucking Quinjets can go intergalactic space. The Fantastic Four has them. They're all just like, nope, nobody has any ships. There's, hey, there's three of them on Earth that they could use. That's still bullshit. And it sounds like Rocket's trying to get ready to go and take those ships from people. The fucking Blackjet can. I, I basically agree with you on that one. Yeah. That was one thing that I was like, well, eh, fuck it. I'll roll with it. I thought it was awesome, though. It was really good. I love on running joke. There's at least 15 spider people here. Peter said it. And I think the Badoon. <laughs> and I love the very last page where they're back in the negative zone. He's like, so, you know, I was thinking, maybe we just leave Earth alone. I was thinking the same thing. I mean, who cares? <laughs> it's beneath us, really. It is. Yeah, that was definitely a good finish. There's just that one thing that besides the, you know, Ben Stain, the selfie photo in the very background where it's Gamora and Carol. It's like behind Kitty Pride's face where Kitty and Quill are looking at each other just before their goodbye. That, to me, is the most unbelievable piece of art back there. I do not think that Gomorrah would be taking a selfie with Carol.
Carol right after she had her locked up. She got over it. It's a little fast. Seems like Gamora's had a little personal growth here and realized that maybe her obsession with Thanos was not the best idea. Uh, I believe that that can happen. I don't think it would happen that fast. I don't think she would be attacking her at this moment, but I don't think that they'd be taking a selfie. She had a lot of time in the joint to think about it. It's <laughs> proof that Carol's plan worked. Gamora got sent to her room to think about it and she thought about it. I don't, that doesn't seem very realistic for Gamora for me. But man, crazy rocket face expressions, man, in this issue. Yeah, rocket is pretty great in this. And I'm digging Peter's jacket. I fucking love this outfit. Yes. I know that they're probably going to change it in about seven issues, but fuck them. I love his uniform. It's just so good. So let's rate it. You first, buddy. I'm going to break the scale this time. I'm giving it at least 13 Spider-Mans. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take the Spider-People one. <laughs> I will give it four and a half decent group battle cries. I will give it five. I knew he was going to say that. I will give it four spaceship graveyards. Speaking of graveyards, our next book is Action Comics number 977, out by DC Comics, The New World, Part 1, written by Dan Jurgens, art by Ian Churchill. I say it's speaking of graveyards because this is the first issue after the whole Superman... Well, it's not really the complete first issue, but I think it's the first Action Comics after they soft, half-rebooted, merged, whatever the hell they did, the New 52 and the post-crisis DC universes together, because everybody loves origin stories. It's basically... <laughs> a retelling of the most well-known story in comics. He's basically like, okay, just so that I'm not surprised by anything, Fortress of Solitude, could you tell me about everything? And it proceeds to give the Superman origin story, which is the least needed origin story on the fucking planet. Definitely. But it did it in a kind of a cool way, but it was still kind of, I can't believe I'm reading this. <laughs> it's kind of a kickoff to try to, I guess, show us the new state of the DC Universe is going to be. I wasn't super, I was Overwhelmed, basically, but I wasn't overwhelmed by it. It was good. The art was great. The story was expected. <laughs> I'm like, I could tell you this story, like, you know, in the dark with no sense of hearing and mute. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. I thought if they told the story that they would at least include some new twist or something. And other than him being able to see what his parents actually did, I didn't really feel like there was that much new information there. No. What did was they merged the styles of the Man of Steel, you know, the immediately post-crisis with the, oh God, the Man of Steel miniseries actually ended up sucking for Superman right before the New 52, and then the New 52 looks into Krypton, so that they were kind of all together. They're trying to a little merge it, but still have some of the New 52 into it and make it kind of a consensus reality. And I don't know why he's asking about this exactly, other than just to make sure that there's no surprises with this new reality that he just caused to happen. He knows that there's two of him kind of merged together, and he doesn't know what's changed in his past. Which, if something had changed, would you even know that it had changed? Isn't that the whole point of it changing? That everything would still seem normal to you? Right. I'm just wondering what's going to happen the next time he meets up with Diana. Well, yeah. I mean, they've talked about that a little bit in Trinity, where Lois and Diana had like their heart-to-heart, -heart where they were saying that that was a different Superman. But now, it's an entirely new other Superman, too. That's what I'm talking about. Form of fused Superman work. How about you get Clark, and she gets a Superman, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was a good book, but it wasn't a great book. It's not bad at all. It was just, it's the origin of Superman. I was kind of underwhelmed by it. It wasn't, like you're saying, it wasn't bad. I just didn't see very much point to it. Like, yeah. there were some parts that were cool. Like, Metallo was awesome. Yes. Definitely. Like, that drawing was pretty cool. I did like seeing him get to see the conversation between Ma and Pa Kent about the baby. I thought that was kind of cool. Just the little S curl? Yeah. <laughs> it was like the only hair. Yeah, I like that. The art was good, but this felt kind of unnecessary to me. They had a little bit of almost blending Smallville into it, too. When it's like starting to get to his childhood, the tornado thing, that's from an episode of Smallville. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like the season nice. closer, I think, of season one or maybe season two, he saves Lana in the middle of a tornado. Exactly like that, except <laughs> not the circle glasses. So I think they're like literally trying to make this is how Superman is kind of story. It just feels a little kind of forced down my throat. Yeah. But I'm not a huge big Superman fan. I found like the nostalgic and the, the familiarity of it just like kind of comforting. Like it wasn't great, but I'm like, yeah, I can handle this. <laughs> I can dig it. I'm basically on the same page with the rest of you guys. It was good. Definitely not needed intro. We all know, you know, it, I think I would have felt a little bit differently if maybe they would have thrown a little something extra in there, something new to spice it up a little bit. But yeah, this was just good old steak and taters Superman. What would have been cool is if they had him seeing his past and there's something obviously different, but he's like, nope, everything checks out. Yeah. That would have been like, I think a cool twist to it. Something. Give me something here. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> like a weird clue for us to pick out. Because I kept looking for something, like in the background, thinking something would be weird. Yeah, something being off. Yeah, some blue dong just hanging out in the background. Well, you're always looking for that in every book, so... <laughs> These are ones where it could happen, though. It's yeah. true. It's true. So are we ready to rate this thing? I think so. I'll give it three unnecessary origin stories. Fuck. God damn it. <laughs> I will give it three Superman and Harry Potter glasses. <laughs> I gave it mid-range two and a half sad moms. I'm going to give it three baby super curls. Oh, sweet. I have one. Let's get some real Star Wars in, Carissa. Dr. Afra, number six, Marvel comic. Afra, book one, part six, written by Karen Gillian, pencils by Kev Walker, inks by Mark Deering, and colors by Antonio Fabella. Last we left off, Immortal Ruhr was taking over all the machines. She starts fast talking because Ruhr wants to, like, kill all the fleshies because he takes over all the machines. Well, I'll torture you. I was like, oh, but that can take a long time. If you just tell me what I want to know, I'll tell you what you want to know because it want to know, like, what time is it how long have i been you know, out of commission i guess as it were while she's doing her fast talking the imperials who are trying to reactivate the bridge across to the core where she is at and they're basically reiterating the thing like oh well it's open to space bring the ships around she does some fast talking she finds out more about the history that you want to know about these ancient jedi order and where they stood versus regular jedi and we get a nice little interesting bit of the past realizing that the being as that is now Rur is crazy pants and a murderous fuck toward <laughs> and kind of a sucker too when it comes down to it yeah kind of <laughs> he hurts her dad and they decide well i'm gonna rip on all the crystals and it's gonna destroy what we're on but i'm not letting this thing get out and so they pull off this fuck off huge crystal and the dad complains a little bit about destroying an ancient society that they could learn more about but she gives zero fuck she leaves and they're taken off ends up kind of they team up with the imperials and they get on the imperial ship because black christine took off with the murder droids and which was sad they're not in this issue lack of murder droids totally depressed kind of a bummer probably why this book isn't as highly as entertaining as it normally is i like how she's like i thought you fascists took orders better there's a really good line of that when they're on the ship and they're getting away because you know it does start falling apart and destroying you know the dad's like oh the twilight of the order wham a helmet on the imperial shuttle starts glowing green and attacking them oh that's a droid there's a murder droid for you (laughs) yeah there's a murder droid but it wasn't one of those i think it was more because he can control all machines I think it was like his last bit of essence coming through, trying to stop them. Afra saves them, takes over. She kicks the Imperial bitch out on some random ass planet and starts saying, well, you're cute, so I'm not going to kill you. Too cute to murder. (laughs) (laughs) You're too cute to murder? Okay. Fluffy plot point that's going to come back. You know, they're not getting rid of her. But then it's also revealed that Afra also likes chicks. So that's cool. But Kieran Gillen's writing it, so I'm not surprised. (laughs) I do like the little dialogue between her and her dad, where he's like, you have terrible taste in women. She's like, so. to you <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that is a good line so then she tells her dad oh we need to give it to this like weird library archaeologist place it's the safest place in the galaxy but it's not uh, foolproof but it's better than me carrying it around that huge ass crystal that she took from the core that really reminded me of raiders of the lost ark yeah in front of her dad she turns it over and it's all safe and he's like yes i'll fix your doctorate she's like good because i need that shit they kind of part ways she's back at some like hive of scum and villainy type bar wheeling making deals selling off those ancient lightsabers that she calmed they don't get as much as she thought they would she talks about paying off i guess the ship that she had of course it's the ship that got stolen but that's when the wookiee shows back up and she's like yeah yeah i owe you i survived she's like you know you had to save your sweet for ass so they're reunited so hopefully it means more murder droids next issue then the big reveal is that she did the old switcheroo to her indian jones-esque-ness no indeed would probably turn it over she's like reveals i still have the crystal ta-da let's go get rich so probably her making bad life choices again that can't go well right what'd you guys think i was very underwhelmed by this issue yeah you know that's the thing it's like i'm normally so into dr afra and love this series and it's so good every single issue that this one yeah i was kind of like bummed i wasn't feeling it as much it had some good parts for sure but yeah yeah it felt like a quick wrap-up to me Mm -hmm. that that was my feeling too you need those droids the fight with immortal roar was just kind of like okay i'm just gonna cut this in half and it was done and i'm like wait that's it oh and then you're off and then okay you ran out of time to tell your story is what it seemed like 
it seemed like they had more to tell, but they only had six issues to tell, and he didn't pace it well. I would agree with mm-hmm. you. Like, the rest of it seemed paced right. This should have been maybe an eight-issue series. Yeah. It just ended too quick. One kind of underwhelming issue in a really good, solid run in general. Yeah, for sure. I'm not going to really fault a series for that. I'm yeah. a little bit more forgiving in that. Were some still really good lines, and it shows interest moving into the new arc, but it isn't as good as the other ones. In general, I've been a little underwhelmed with the actual Dr. Afro standalone series. I think she worked really, really well with Vader. And she was doing okay when she's got the droids around. But if you take those droids out, it's not very interesting. They should have fed more into this is basically evil Indiana Jones. Which we have said before. So I think sometimes we forget how we might like other issues when a really bad one comes up. Because then we're like, yeah, it wasn't very good. I'm like, "Mm, I think it was. They wasn't as great because, I mean, fucking Vader is awesome. Yeah, kind of like a victim to its own success. And she's definitely going to try to get her own pace and her own individuality. So it's going to take a while. But definitely don't leave out those murder joys. They make part of that delicious blend that makes Dr. Afra actually work. Ready to rate it? I'm going to give it three. You're too cute to murder. I'm going to give it three and a half. Oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't cleared to strangle you. I will give it two. You have terrible taste in women. God damn it. That's a good one. I will give it three actual eternal roars. So I'm going to take us over to hook up with our D&D group over to Rat Queens number two, Image Comics, written by Curtis G. Weeb, art by Owen Gianni, and there's a backup story written by Patrick Rothfuss with art by Nate Taylor. So one of my favorite guilty pleasure ridiculous movies is the A-Team, in particular for a scene where they steer a tank by firing the tank barrel to fly it and steer it while it's falling. And I kind of feel like the Rat Queens do the same thing like this, but they steer a goose dragon in a ridiculous plot where half a plan comes together. So last issue, they were in this tower fighting this goose dragon thing, and it's not the Rat Queens, it's the Cat Kings that are the brother and his Rat Queen knockoffs are there. So the dragon has swallowed Betty and has flown away, and all the Rat Queens have leaped on the dragon. And then Betty is down in the guts with the gut merchant, who she realizes is actually like a murderous, insane cannibal (laughs) that she starts fighting, and she carves her way out of the goose's stomach, and then is using her daggers to crawl up the back of the beast while all the other rat queens get there. She takes her daggers and like drives it into the beast's skull and is kind of using that to steer it while the other rat queens are using their weapons to flap the wings of the goose, which crash lands and injures everybody. And then like every first level D&D adventurer getting his best wish come true, a dragon crashes in front of him, has one hit point left, and her brother stabs it to get the killing blow (laughs) and gets all the experience. Totally. (laughs) That's really what that reminded me of, 100%. (laughs) So they all go back to town to cash in their winnings and get drunk. When they get to the town, they find out that it's kind of in ruins and there's all these weird cultists that are part of D's Cthulhu cult. And you even see some of the characters from before, like Orc Dave is part of this cult now. Yeah, which is really sad. One of the people they don't like from before is also part of the cult and she's trying to get D to come back because D is basically the Pope of this religion, essentially. She's like the chosen one of that god, but she has rejected that and is, in my opinion, multi-class into a ranger is really what she's done. <laughs> it has seemed that way, especially with the boots. Well, she's got the sweet book. She's got the book. She's talking about nature. She's not really so into her lyrical training anymore. She can't do it as well. So that seems to me what, if this was a D&D game, what has happened, which essentially this is every <laughs> drunken D&D game you've ever played. <laughs> so while they're there getting trashed, the Cat Kings and the Rat Queens sort of join forces. But in order to initiate him, after they're just drunk and trashed, they end up going to like a cemetery. I love that bar scene, by the way. Yeah, that bar scene is actually really cool. It's a two-page spread, and there's this bar, and there's all these little mini panels of people having conversations. I love the one with Betty and uh-huh. Buddy, the little mushroom guy <laughs> that she's talking to. I think they have really great interactions with each other. I think that's a great addition for it. It just gives her like the best straight man you can ever have for all her wackiness, where she just has one-sided conversations with them with his goofy-ass <laughs> googly eyes looking at her and not saying anything. <laughs> really funny. <laughs> okay, if you don't want to drink. Yeah. You brought a mushroom kid to the bar. <laughs> so it's pretty pretty funny. I mean, the whole Rat Queens in general is pretty amusing. So they go to this graveyard where they have this kind of like initiation ceremony where they try and raise the dead and spend like the night in the graveyard, but it never works. They're never able to raise the dead, but this time they totally are able to raise the dead and like a zombie army is there that they're fighting. And as they're fighting them, this other adventuring group with like a drow and like a bard rocking like a sweet (laughs) electric lute (laughs) shows up and is like accusing them of being like necromantic heretics. 
which technically, yes, they are. <laughs> yes. The the part with the bar just yeah. made me laugh. <laughs> like it's got the like tight curls. Yeah, that's what you picture every bard yes. in every D and D game looking like. Essentially, his pose is just oh man, maybe shake my head like in shame. Like there's an artificer <laughs> or a rogue maybe, and there's the monk maybe ogre, and then like the drow cleric yeah cleric maybe i was thinking paladin the two swords are fighter oh yeah it could be a paladin so then there's a backup story and i actually like the backup story more than the main story oh the backup story was great that's because patrick rothfuss wrote it which i'm hoping that this means patrick rothfuss is maybe going to start getting into comics this might be like his first little foray into it to get used to it do a little two-page story you know it's actually more than two pages it's like four or five pages it's the story of the rat queens out in the rain and they go to take shelter under this overhang and not a cave you know to get out of the rain you think there's this merchant with them who's telling them this fairy tale which kind of reminds Reminds me a little bit of almost like maybe the Deathly Hollows story a little bit. So Betty's listening to this and it starts getting progressively like the art gets weirder and weirder as it goes on. Stories within stories. Yeah, stories within stories. I noticed that. I'm like, wait a minute. This is more flashbacks than an episode of Arrow. So in the end, it ends up being like uh, like crayon drawings with like stick figures. And then you see that Betty is actually just talking to a tree stump that has like magic mushrooms on it that she's been eating. Yeah, she's high as fuck. And all the other rat queens are <laughs> so like, awesome. what the hell is going on here? And her eyes are so red and bloodshot just when i was getting to the point where i was like okay when are they gonna get to the point on this because i'm like sitting there reading and i'm not really paying attention to where i'm at in the comic and i'm like so they're going okay wait another story another story and then that's right when i was like when are they gonna get to and then it's like oh she's high as fuck <laughs> if rat queens is how every D party ends up when you start drinking betty's stories are always if you ask a friend of yours who's tripping balls about his character <laughs> this is what you'll get so it was amusing i liked it i wasn't in love with it but i thought it was amusing enough what'd you guys think of it i fucking loved it honestly i want to play D so fucking bad <laughs> especially the fight when they made the bad choice of jumping onto the dragon and it took off i think i've been in a scenario like that where you're like okay guys what the fuck can we do what can i roll on my sheet that could work on that where's the other two in the party <laughs> why did i put so many points in diplomacy <laughs> fuck this <laughs> Yeah. You feel like, like you're saying, you want to play d and you feel like you've done that, so it's super relatable. Like, seriously, Wizards of the Coast needs to sponsor these guys. I totally agree. <laughs> or Pathfinder. Paizo could do it, too. Yeah, it could be a Pathfinder game. RuneQuest. Come on, RuneQuest. That's my favorite. I thought this definitely was amusing. Definitely gives you the feel of playing D&D with your friends. The plot lines were a little confusing in the way that they are written. A little too strange in some points for me, but overall I laughed, and that's really what I'm looking for from Brad queens i thought it was sad that he found out that smidgen dave is oh, dead God. not only smidgen dave dead and then orc dave is cultist now cuckoo yeah. pants cultist so sad something that i yeah. never thought of you know is the smidgen's trying to or the halfling is trying to get everybody to stop because it's like i'm up to my cooch and mud i love that she's like you don't understand you with your high sexy boots she'll come up to my cooch and i was like i love her so much i think betty is by far the best part of the rat queens i really like her hannah's a close second but Betty's my girl. Soft spot for Violet, but yeah. And they remember to fucking put goddamn freckles on her shoulders. You don't know how important that is unless you're a redhead. Oh, and then when they're fighting in the cemetery and Braga wearing the pink lacy dress and then she's like, I just bought this dress. <laughs> she's being all girly. I thought that was pretty cool. We ready to rate this thing? Or So I will give it three and a half. You don't need to drink to hang out with us, buddy. I like you just the way you are. Oh, that's good. I love this one. I really enjoyed it. So I'm going to give it four. Maybe my boobs tingle. I gave it four up to my coochin' mud. I love this book. I love Rat Queens every week, and I am going to give it four stories within stories. We got Weapon X, number one, Marvel Comics, written by Greg Pak, pencils by Greg Land, inks by Jay Leister, colors by Frank D'Armada. Obviously, we are back on the Weapon X thing, so obviously you're going to start off with some old man Logan out in the forest being a grumpy old man. He runs into, like, some teenagers that are lost in the woods, and he, like, smells fear on them and stuff, and gives them directions, like, hey, you know, go over here, blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of a funny moment because he's, like, he gives them direction, he actually smells the stink of their fear, like, fade, kind of, like, has a moment where he's, like, got to remember, oh, they're just kids, you know, got to remember, kind of like chuckles to himself not everyone's a soldier in a war yeah yeah and then schnick 
nope, wrong, Wolverine. Turns out that you see one of them and he's like got this big, huge, claws arm robotic thing and his face is peeling away and they both like turn into these like robot death machines. <laughs> they look like Terminator. They're big. Like something out of Terminator with big, huge, giant Lady Deathstrike claws on them. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I was thinking about. It's like a T-1000 yeah, totally. with Lady Deathstrike's like claws. So they start kicking Wolverine's ass because he's old and he's not as good as he used to be and they're just deadly and he runs off jumps into like a lake it's like on a waterfall and like cuts a big old gouge out of himself and leaves a chunk of meat in the water to like distract him and so they're running him down and they go after that to like the pool of blood in the water and then he uses that as a distraction so he could escape so then he's talking to himself essentially thinking who is it is it weapon x weapon x plus reavers who the fuck this time and then he's thinking like because of their claws the way their claws were he's like there's only one person i know with those and that's yuriko lady deathstrike so then we flash to her and she's in like this tank and i loved this scene this was probably oh it was so badass <laughs> i noticed that somebody had posted it up on our instagram page but yeah this is my favorite part right here is that That's she's right. in there there's like these evil scientists that are standing around arguing over they're like splitting up their lunch and stuff and complaining and then they're like oh look she's awake again oh look at that healing factor and oh don't worry she can't break through that glass and then she starts like running her nails along the glass it. it shows kill you all <laughs> on the glass and they're like oh that's great <laughs> then they also show that those same evil nameless scientists bring in this cooler ice chest type thing that says logan on it it's the, actually that piece of meat that they had found from wolverine when he was out in the wilderness he sliced a piece of himself off as like a decoy for like blood and yeah cut off like the top of his left arm yeah yeah and so they throw that into a vat that says logan on it and they're like two down three to go and uh domino and warpath and saber tooth marked this was a funny scene to me wolverine like an old man in the library barring their internet and arguing with another old guy over god damn it i'm here on the internet trying to look up my stuff <laughs> this one really cracked me up because it really was like an old man scene because it's like who the hell oh, is totally the it was yeah <laughs> And then he's like, and you're looking at them mutants? Yeah. Even reading about mutants this whole time. What's the matter with you? <laughs> he's like, I'm a getting, I'm a getting. <laughs> Two cranky old men who don't know how to use the internet arguing with each other. It's pretty funny. Exactly. So Wolverine is walking out. You see that he sees a camera and he's talking about how he, even though he wants to like kick this guy's ass, doesn't know if it's one of those robots or not. So he's like just trying to keep himself cool because there's going to be one soon enough. And then he rides his motorcycle out into the wilderness and hunts down Sabretooth, who's living out in the woods in some like shack. He tells him that there's these things coming after him and you know I'm telling the truth and what do you know and typical back and forth, yeah. He also like he got attacked too and like he's all fucked up and Sabretooth tells a story about how it was just a little kid that turned into one of the things. Just like sprouted a bunch of claws and shit. He shows that he's regrowing big ass chunks out of his body. Definitely got the impression that Sabretooth killed that little kid and that's kind of messed him up. Which also is why they don't have any chunks of him to take back. Yeah, definitely. Wolverine's trying to get Sabretooth to team up with him, which obviously they don't get along. He mentions that he made sure that at least three cameras got his face on there, so they'll be here right about one of the robots shows up. And so that's about it. That's basically what happened. I gotta say, on this one, I feel like, of course you want more, but it's like they definitely fed you just enough to make me want to bite on this story and see what the fuck's gonna happen next. I was intrigued by this story. I want more, yes. <laughs> you know? Definitely. Like a clone Wolverine and other clawy types. Sweet. My only thoughts on it were it kind of seems to be riding the coat trails of the Logan movie. Because this is kind of the story there. Very They're true. like using their genes to grow like X-24. Mm-hmm. in bats so that they can have their own versions of them and then the robots just seem like reavers coming after them it was well done i thought i'm interested in the story and i want to see where it's going it just seems a little predictable and i'm a little tired of old man logan uh. it's just wolverine but with white hair and wrinkles <laughs> at this point they're not really writing old man logan they're just writing wolverine but old i thought that scene in the library was <laughs> emphasizing that he is an old man i thought that was kind of cool but it didn't really seem like he was having any problem doing searches or anything it 
just seemed like he was using up the computer and the other guy was being grumpy and old too. Yes, but I don't know if you've ever been to a library. They're slow. The people using the internet <laughs> there are old people and homeless people. It's really the two people who use their computer at the library. The fact that, yeah, he's really slow and he's having those arguments with other old guys. And I also liked that when these Reavers attack them, I mean, I'm going to call them Reavers. I don't know what they are. Adamantium T-1000s. That they actually really mess with their heads. Like now Logan is convinced that everyone else is like one of these secret robots. Sabretooth is haunted by having to kill this little kid. So I like that there are actual effects from the battles that they just went through. I was not expecting to like this book very much. So I'm like, I don't really care that much about Weapon X. But I got to say, this was really damn good. Like that part, you mentioned it, Rory, and I posted it up on Instagram with the kill you all inside the tube. Mm-hmm. That's an awesome image. That's just great. Definitely. Yeah, I really like that part. And really kind of distills her character down for you. Now, did you notice when they were doing the, he was thinking about Weapon X and different creations of the program, they had Deadpool, but somebody drew him like Liefeld draws? Yes. He had this huge chest and like oddly oriented head. <laughs> they also had, uh, was it, is it Flag there? That's the the weird like Captain America guy. Oh yeah. Um, no, that was Nitro. He was in the Jessica Jones show. Yes, he was in Jessica Jones. I'm pretty sure he's Nitro. Yeah, I think Flag is from Suicide Squad. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. 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 I love all the characters that are in this. I'm really excited about this. I thought the story was good. Yes, it was predictable. Honestly, I really didn't expect it not to be, <laughs> to, to be frank. So it's got some good uh, Weapon X action going on it. I really like the artwork too. Just good scenes where it's like, ooh, like the Lady Deathstrike thing was part of it. The Sabretooth missing skin thing was a good image also. So I'm going to give it four who had the chicken salad. I will also give it four. I'll give it four. It was a kid, just a little kid. I gave it three and a half. Kill you all. I will give it three and a half. His name is Nuke, actually. Speaking of killing them all, why don't you take us over to Gotham? Okay, uh, let's go over to Gotham with Detective Comics number 954 by DC Comics, which is the most redundant thing to say. League of Shadows Part 4, Snake in the Eagle's Shadow, written by James Tinian IV, pencils and inks by Mauricio Takara, and colors by Marcelo Maiolo. This is the kind of continuing the story of the League of Shadows taking down Batman's entire family, and Batman being at wit's end every Everybody, including Alfred, has been dealt with at this point, and Batman's just kind of going a little bit nuts. And from the last issue, uh, Rachel Ghoul is in the Batcave being all snooty and snotty. The story is Rachel Ghoul and Batman talking through different shit that the League of Shadows has done throughout time, and how Batman thought, oh, the League of, I'm sorry, the League of Assassins doesn't actually exist. But then we find from Rachel and whether or not it's true, what Rachel is saying is that he's wiped Batman's memory, which seems to be a really easy fucking thing to do in the DC universe is wipe (laughs) Batman's memory. You'd think that all of his training would have helped him with that, but no. (laughs) He basically talks Batman into, I don't know if you want to say trusting, but going along with him and his plan to try to figure out how they can take down the League of Assassins so that they can kind of get everything back because reportedly, according to Raish, even Raish doesn't like these guys and they've gotten kind of a little out of hand and he wants to take them down. And it's the story starting off that kind of arc and uh, ends with this badass image of Orphan just cutting through some of the most dangerous assassins in the world. Whereas Batgirl's dad and his army, a bunch of Iron Men with Bat costumes, they're going <laughs> after and they're afraid of taking on the League of Assassins uh, whereas the aforementioned and orphaned has already taken down a whole room of them. That was pretty good. What did everybody else think? I think that end part where you're talking about is pretty badass where they're, they're talking about no one could stop them. Who could do it? And then you get the picture of Orphan with her bloody swords carving a path through them. You're like, oh, there's your answer. Yeah, the end of the Orphan was my favorite part. The rest of it I thought was kind of talky-talky. <laughs> There's too much talking here. Well, I mean, I like the talking, but sometimes it gets a little much. Somebody punch someone, goddammit. I really, really hate the art in this so much. I do not like it at all. End page with Orphan was pretty cool. And I liked the part with, like, cheesy Batman from, like, the 50s <laughs> fighting. Oh, yeah. I thought those were pretty funny, or amusing to me anyway, that they still have, like, the ridiculous of being, like, shirtless, but still having your bat cowl on and fighting with swords and stuff. That was the 70s? Okay, I'll believe it. That looks like some 70s chest hair there with Batman. But overall, I just, I really don't like this art style. I hope they never let this artist near Batman again. Shit. Damn. (laughs) 
shitting all over that artist. Can we replace this guy with the anti-Semitic guy from the X-Men? <laughs> I'd rather have him than this guy. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I'll take bad drawings over racism any day. If I could get quality over bad art, I would like that even better. This might be a tasting. Other people might really love terrible art, so... <laughs> I don't know. I kind of dug this terrible art a little bit. <laughs> I think more accurately, I would say I wasn't horribly offended. I wasn't horribly offended by it. I thought that there were some good scenes. I didn't like the expressions he was doing with Batman when he was talking to Ra's al Ghul. It, they were kind of wonky. I did like the writing. Of, and of course, I love Ra's al Ghul as a character. He's probably just one of my favorite actual villains. Batman villains tend to be kind of hokey, and Race just never is that way, or Ross, or however the fuck you want to pronounce it. When the guy is, like, punching the shit out of the glass window, I liked the whole setup with that. Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't as hating on it as uh, Ryan was. I've seen shittier art. <laughs> yeah, well, and the other thing is the story itself is very confusing, so it doesn't give me what I felt was, like, strong enough writing to distract from the art either. Like, normally I like James Tinian IV's stuff on Detective Comics, but this one, I think because there's a lot of what's true, not true going on, mm -hmm. that that pulled me out of it a little bit. James Tinian IV's writing was unclear and not crisp enough to let me focus uh, you just on the that. the art to kind of help. Right. And because the writing yeah. was not terrible, but not particularly great, it made me focus on the art, and I don't like the art at all. The artwork, I didn't think it was as horrible as you make it sound. I wasn't like blown away by it either. I thought it was okay. I definitely feel like I've seen worse artwork. I mean, it's not She-Wolf bad artwork. Oh, God, no. <clears throat> oh, shit. <laughs> I'll give it that. It is not that bad. Or Pencil Head, or, or Eraser Head, whatever the other one was. That was. It's not Rob Liefeld bad. <laughs> I'm having a hard time getting into it. Just after the ones with Tom King that we've been reading, that other Batman series, I'm getting like so jazzed on that run with Bane that I come to this and I'm like, this is not doing it for me. I think what makes Detective good is you get a lot of the interplay of the team and because all the team's been taken off the table there's not that much interesting stuff left like you don't get Clayface and all those people interacting with each other. Like sure she was cool and I like Orphan but those didn't show up until near the end so and not very much. I like the cheesy TV show Batman like kind of drawings that were placed in there. Must reach Bat Utility Belt. <laughs> Get the shark repellent. Mechanical shark repellent. Oh, what was that on the Lego Batman movie? It was like, no, you can use that. That's pretty much useless. Yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> that had a lot of nice inside like jokes for people in that. Are we ready to rate this thing? I have to agree. The art is just not good. It's not the worst art I've ever seen in a book. It's not Rob Liefeld, but it's not good. It's over-inked, I think, which makes me wonder if his pencils are any good at all. Because a lot of times, especially if you're doing the pencils and the inks together, you're, you're trying to cover up your sucking. <laughs> so... <laughs> I'll give it three. Why is Orphan holding that sword backwards? I was just going to give it two and a half orphans. I didn't hate it quite so much as you guys did. I didn't hate it. Well, two and a half to me is mid-range. Two and a half is nothing special one way or the other. Yeah, it's right in the middle for me. I'm a Ra's al Ghul sucker, so I'm going to give it three and this detective. I will give it two. Remember at Swadas. So what Ra's al Ghul says to him, remember the shadows, but all pig latin -y. So, super secret, I'm taking us over to X-Men Blue, number one from Marvel Comics, written by Colin Bunn. Pencils and inks by Jorge Molina and Matteo Rufagni. And colors by Matt Milla. So, X-Men Blue is pretty much the X-Men from the 60s that were pulled forward in time by the original Beast, and this is kind of their story now that they've set off to kind of do their own thing. There's a couple main points that happen in here. Like, this book has a lot of surprises and twists in it, so they're flying along in their Blackbird. They've got some mutant signatures from Cerebro, and they're going to track it down, and there's this yacht that has all these sausages on it. So they land, and there's this cheesy magician villain in there that they go to fight, and they start fighting him and taunting him. It's uh, oh, what's his name? It's Black Tom Cassidy. Uh, who's got like the Batman logo on his shirt for some reason. Yep. But... I was like, he's like Batman Beyond, but in a fancy outfit. Yeah. So he's blasting them and they're, they're blasting him. And through some teamwork and stuff, they kind of have him cornered and beaten. And they're like, why is he still gloating? We just kicked his ass. And then he's like, surprise. And that's when it's so fucking awesome. <laughs> the Juggernaut comes tearing out of like a room. Yeah. Oh, I love that page where he comes out. He doesn't say like, I'm the Juggernaut bitch, but that's pretty much what yeah. it is. Who wants some? Who wants some? <laughs> so he comes tearing out looking so awesome. 
awesome and he's going to fight them and he's like I don't know who you little X-Men babies are and I'm probably not going to kill all of you but Scott Scott killed Charles and I'm going to fucking kill him which I thought was really cool to kind of give you maybe a little motivation for this fight for Juggernaut that this is actually really personal to him that Scott did kill his brother and he wants vengeance on him and Scott's trying to tell him you know I'm not the same dude but Juggernaut doesn't want to hear any of it and then there's these really funny like comedy panels where like Scott's like running across the deck of the ship and the Juggernaut's chasing him <laughs> yeah, very much like a cartoonish chasing that's pretty funny. So they start working together to try and take down the Juggernaut, and it's just not working. Like, he's backhanding people and punching through ships and just wrecking shop. Because he's the Juggernaut. So then there's this actually really cool part where the Beast, who's gotten into mysticism, ever since that one story arc we did where they find that mask and they go back to Egypt with Apocalypse, and he starts getting interested in magic being just like another form of science. So he opens up this portal to, like, a hell dimension, and drags the juggernaut through it. Scott's pissed off at him. He's like, oh my god, Beast, what did you do? You sent him to hell. He's like, no, I sent him to Siberia with a short little detour through hell. So juggernaut's somewhere in Siberia now. And that's kind of where this story of them fighting the juggernaut on the ship ends, which if that had just been the issue, would have been a pretty cool issue to me. But that's not all of it. Then you get kind of the twist to it, right? Where they fly over to Madripoor. And at first I was like, what the hell are they doing in Madripoor? Like these kids do not need to be hanging out in Madripoor. (laughs) Only bad things happen there there and you find out who the mentor and actual leader for the team is you get this really awesome reveal of Magneto revealing uh, himself to them as their mentor saying that they're Charles's original vision and they're going to work together to make it happen which I mean Magneto has led the X-Men before so I'm not entirely sure that he's a bad guy in here I don't think Magneto's a villain in this I don't think he's a hero either I think he's just trying to carry his friend's dream on I mean he learned that lesson years ago and I think he's honestly trying to do that he's just he's like a really angry Martin Luther King this is like by some means necessary he's always been Malcolm X Charles Xavier is Martin Luther King and Magneto is Malcolm X I mean that's always been the the parallel between the two right but I think this time he's, he's supposed to be somewhere in between so he's like later Malcolm X you know that's mellowed yes. out a little bit like right before he got shot yeah so blown up and then, again, if that had just been the issue, that would have been pretty badass, too. But that ain't all. Because then you get a story up in the frozen north somewhere, whether it's Alaska or Canada, I'm not really sure. But wait, there's more. There's more. So there's this small town sheriff is organizing a posse because something's out killing stuff in the woods. And they take their dogs out hunting and they find a bunch of animals that have been killed by some animal. And there's this guy in this parka that they're confronting. And the guy's not really saying anything. And then you hear this kind of chanting like from the woods, you know, when, when? Wendigo. And then the Wendigo comes out, which is pretty badass. I mean, I thought Jessica had taken down the Wendigo, but... My dear Jessica, clean up your mess. But it's a spirit, so, I mean, it can go wherever it goes, right? So the Wendigo's there and is just tearing into these people, and that's when the guy gets kind of, like, thrown into a tree, and then he stands up, and then you get this badass panel, you get the schnicked, and this guy comes running in with his claws, and I'm 99% sure that that is Wolverine. That's Jimmy Hudson. Think so? Yeah, they confirmed it. That's Jimmy Hudson. Well, damn it, my whole theory was blown what was your theory my theory was that wolverine was back and i was really excited about that just like original wolverine got a thing for redheads and is the same age as gene so he fights the wendigo to kind of like a standstill and tells everyone to get the hell out of there and goes staggering off into the woods in sort of classic wolverine style so you got at least three or four little plot twists in here really awesome scenes good banter between them you've got the juggernaut you've got magneto you've got all kinds of cool stuff in this i really really liked this one what'd you guys think of it I like the barbershop conversation. I thought it was really cute. And actually, I thought that was Cyclops channeling you, Ryan, because the whole like, if I come across, the place is going to be full of hippies. And they're like, you mean hipsters? And he's like, whatever. I'm like, it's Ryan. (laughs) Ryan is Cyclops. We do have a lot of uh, in common trying to keep this ragtag bunch of misfits in line and following orders. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you want to emulate Cyclops. Well, you know, murderous rampage that ends in the destruction of your most treasured hero. and And Gene's like, I'd love to see you with a hipster beard. Everybody hates you. Yeah. In some universes, you get taken apart atom by atom. Yeah. I like the overall story. There were some great reveals being dropped in here. I don't like the way they were drawing Jean Grey. Quite frankly, she looks too anime for me throughout the whole thing. She looks very Gen 13 to me. Gene 13. Yeah, I agree. And I don't know, like, I was pretty happy with everybody else, the way everybody else was done. But for some reason, when they draw her, it's like the art just didn't fit for me. I didn't like a lot of the ways she was 
drawn. But overall, I did enjoy the story. It definitely felt very X-Men to me. There's also a panel on the like upcoming in X-Men Blue that has me really excited. Now that the Red Skull doesn't have Professor X's brain, there's a picture of what looks like Professor X, and he's doing the fingers to the temple telepathy thing and saying, to me, my X-Men. I don't know if that's actually Charles Xavier or not, but it looks pretty awesome. Something about that page that I noticed is that, so you've got first row, you've got Jimmy and the X-Men, right? And then you've got Gen X, and then you've got what looks like a demon beast yeah, and some other guys that I don't really recognize. I think those are the horsemen, because that's Deadpool, and that's Beast. I don't know if you remember the Apocalypse storyline they went into where they were the four horsemen. The future? Oh, no, I I hated it, so I stopped reading it like two books in. But then you've got Xavier, but then that blows my theory out of the water that these were like some dark X-Men, and that's... Could be. His eyes look pretty evil, so I don't know. I'm excited to see how it plays out. I didn't like when they were listing off like their names and their powers that they could do underneath at the beginning. When they got the Cyclops, it's just like, eye blast. Like, everyone else had like a few things, and he was just like, eye blast. Like, oh, poor Cyclops. I like they're doing that in Marvel now sometimes where you'll get the panel of the person with their power descriptions and it's kind of sassy and funny. I like that. Well, there's a lot of cute little one-liners in this one. Like, this guy's twirl-worthy black mustache game's on point, or she calls them the Hellfire Reject. The banter between them is good, with Scott trying to kind of assert leadership over the team and being told he's not the boss of Iceman, and there's some good stuff in there. He keeps on trying to take over every team. Like, he keeps on, he was trying to take over champions, he's trying to take over this. Scott is a natural-born leader. That's kind of what leaders do, yeah. <laughs> I'm born to lead. I'm just really bad at leading. <laughs> I didn't say where I was going to lead you to. <laughs> Almost on the very last end of the book, it's got the covers on the side. For everybody who liked the classic X-Men, you've got blue quote-unquote classic X-Men. The new class team, you've got gold. But I'll point out that all the way down at the bottom in Astonishing X-Men, that's essentially your 90s X-Men. Yeah. There's still no Rogue and Gambit, so... Well, there's Rogue, and then right below her is Gambit. What are you looking at? The very last page, bottom right, Astonishing X-Men. Rogue is right above Gambit. Dennis Hopeless is going to be writing Jean Grey, which could be cool. You know, we like his writing with female characters, so that could be cool. So I'm actually pretty excited, actually, about the Marvel X-Men universe that they're putting out. It's actually getting good again. I think... I think I will give this four and a half. You're not the boss of me. I'm going to give it four. Who wants some? I gave it three and a half. Code names. <laughs> I will give it four to me, my X-Men. Ready to take us over to some hates? All right. Yeah, once again, back to the hills. <laughs> Rory is lured by the banjos. Yep. Harrow County, number 22. Dark Horse Comics written by Cullen Bunn. Art by Tyler Crook. The Tales of Harrow County. Written by and art by Chris Swizer. Tell you what. Why don't you learn us something, Rory? So this starts off and we have Bernice is in a shack with old Lady Levy and they're having conversation and she's talking about the Haints are out there. They were born evil, serve evil purposes. And she's sitting there and she's telling her about how she sworn oaths and learned lessons to kind of protect people against the Haints. And she tells her that how Emmy is dangerous and she shouldn't trust her and realize that if she decides that she wants to swear the same oaths that she did, then she might have to actually battle Emmy at one point or another. They're going to have to come against each other from time to time. Then it flashes to Bernice coming out and she's talking with Emmy, who's talking with a bunch of haints at the time, hunting haints and stuff. Obviously, they have a disagreement with it because, you know, Emmy's got more of a let's deal with them for what they're doing now. And Bernice is much more like these haints do bad things. And once they've gone bad, can't trust them at all. And so... As part of this conversation, she's like, you know, here, I'll show you what some of these haints are like. And so she brings her to this old, this old dilapidated house that's falling apart. She's still learning her lessons. She's still new with what she's doing. So she's wanting to kind of test herself at the same time, like not use Emmy's abilities to deal with these things, realizing that at one point or another, they might be at odds. They come to the house and they're looking around and her little creepy Chronomicon bag warns them. That bag has the skin of this child that can remove its skin. Oh, yeah. And then the meat body can run around separately, and then the skin can also move around. That's why I call it the Necronomicon bag, the creepy skin bag. Is the bag made from the skin? No, the skin's folded up inside it. And also the implications of the window open with the bird and the empty crib. That was good that they show and don't tell there. Yeah. It warns them there's something dangerous around there. And they're looking around the shack and she's like, I don't I don't see anything. She's like, well, take a look through this keyhole. Tell me what you see. And then she sees this creepy, evil little kid that like looks at him with like sharp teeth and Arr! she's like, oh shit, there's something in there. 
and she explains to her that it's a keyhole ghost and that once the house falls apart completely well then the thing's going to be loose she's trying to be like more considerate and be like well why what does it do what does it want and she says well if you really want to see look at the lock the other way and then what it does is by looking through the other end of the keyhole it shows you the way the ghost sees the world and it's like slaughtered people and cows and rivers of blood and yeah armageddon basically which you know freaks her out she's like oh man that's horrible that's how it sees the world bernice is like we can't see with its naked eye but you know it's moving around but it can't see us unless we see it she hands her like this keyhole emmy's like i could just send it away if, if you want to and she's like no i need to prove myself so just be here, help me, but let me do this part. Emmy starts looking through this keyhole that she gave her, and she's looking around, and all of a sudden it like, pops up and takes a swing at her and claws through her arm. Bernice is like, it's basically just swinging blindly. It can't see you right now, but it knows we're here. And so Emmy gets pissed, and she tells it, come on out right this instant. He materializes and she's like you ought to be ashamed of yourself for acting like that and it just says that i haven't heard anything from you in so long and emmy's like you have never heard anything from me and she goes but i have to decide what i'm gonna do with you he's like saying i just want to be free she says i know what you want you're planning on hurting people i can't let you out so then all of a sudden out of nowhere bernice jumps out and kind of like doesn't like that emmy is talking with it instead of just taking care of it so she jumps out and sucks it into this lock and locks it in there she says how we used to be friends and she's like wait a minute we are friends what's gotten into you and that's the old woman talking then they go walking back to the old woman's house and she is laying dead on the ground with these black adders is what they look like slithering around her she had him in a jar earlier so it looks like bernice is gonna filling her shoes quicker than she expected so that's the first part of the story and then they have this second part of the story they call it worship music and so there's this guy and he's he'd play music for the church people when they were having revivals and like baptizing people in the river what happened is then a couple of people never came back up so they assume that his his singing must have caused something evil underneath the water so they cut his tongue out but then the guy continues to play his banjo and says that the truth is the thing under the water never gave two hoots for the lyrics anyhow. And it like murders all the church people. Yeah, I liked it. I thought that was really effective storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's just one page. You get an entire story. Exactly. It was great. It's very old school, not ghost stories, but sort of ghost stories and like kind of having a, a twist on the moral of the story. I feel like this book and Hillbilly exist in the same universe. I know. And have the same ethos and mythology, you know, of that, like, country folklore. You could definitely see Hillbilly, like, roaming through the same world. See, my thought on that was that this kind of fits in the same world almost as kind of like an American Gods kind of thing, where all these back hills tales are true. But, I mean, it could even fit into, like, kind of like a BPRD. Just that whole real feeling ghost stories are true in the back hills kind of thing. Yeah, I could see that. Dig the fuck out of this book. I've got to go back and read all of them now. I love the thing with the keyhole. It's so creative and interesting. It has like its own internal logic for how it works without overly explaining it. Totally agree. Folklore is like that. I grew up in the... Virginia's not really the deep south, but I grew up in the south and there's the one-page story. You get told stories like that. I don't want to say it's a fairly accurate book because they don't really talk about haints. <laughs> The feel, it feels right. Like the key lock and the keyhole and stuff like that. The folklore has things like that, that they work. It's like associated magic, basically. I heard a NPR story a couple months ago about Harrow County where they interviewed Cullen Bunn. And he is as from the South as you can get. <laughs> <laughs> I thought making comics. The dude is hella smart. Like, don't be taken in by the accent. He's really, really smart, but he is Southern. He's writing about his world here. I think it translates well. I like a kind of old wives tales. Yeah. It gives a lot of interest and depth and things that you might, you don't see very often. And this art style is really not an art style I would normally like, but it absolutely works for this. It totally fits. I don't think any other would work. I agree. Yeah. You have to have this art. It gives it this dreamy, otherworldly feel to it. Nothing being super defined. It's like a Mignola book. You need something that's like a Mignola style art. It's that gritty kind of deteriorated watercolor, like murky. It just, yeah, it, just, it fits that kind of... It's rural. Story. Yeah. And that little ghost dude is creepy as fuck. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
And she healed really quickly, which I saw her friend Bernice give the side eye in one of those panels about that. I think it would be really interesting if who the protagonist for Harrow County switches. Because, like, Emmy has been the protagonist, right? But it seems like Bernice is taking more of, like, a central role. So seeing this friendship play out will be very interesting. I always not exactly forget about Harrow County, but it's never quite on my list of stuff to go and read. And then every time I do, I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is why I like it. So I think it needs to go back in the rotation a little more for me. You know I love that hillbilly shit. Holy shit, this is the good stuff. Alrighty, let's rate it up then. So I'm going to give this four and a half. When we see it, it can see us. I gave it four just straight up keyholes. I'll give it four and a half jars full of serpents. God damn it! (laughs) (laughs) Fucking going to do that, bastard. I will give it four and a half haints. Also, though, by the way, we should also wish Christina, our other nerd yes. in crimes, happy birthday today. Today is her birthday, so happy birthday. Happy birthday, Christina. Happy birthday, you magnificent bitch. <laughs> our goddess of cussing. So, the nerdist Chris Hardwick has put together this fabulous festival in our neck of the woods, California, Silicon Valley at the Shoreline Amphitheater. It is a conglomeration of all things music, comics, and comedy, which you know really speaks to us because we, from the beginning, have melded music and comics in that line in between them and how they work really well with each other. So it's a festival that will have some booths and a lot of comic creators there, as well as some really good musicians like Weezer and some comedians like Michael Ian Black and some other ones like that. And it's a really neat festival and I encourage you all to try to go. It's June 24th and 25th. We will most likely be there if everything works out the way we want it to. I know at least on definitely Saturday, some of us. There's all kinds of awesome bands. There's all kinds of great comedians. There's all kinds of comic creators. And probably merch. Yeah, there's a full listing in our page uh, along with the link over for more information on the ID10T website where you can find out about admissions and all that sort of wonderful stuff. So I'm really looking forward to it. So hopefully we'll see you there. It's all the good stuff. So those were the books we read this week. To check out our other podcast, Broke Gaming and Cut the Cord, as well as other nerd shenanigans, go check out Four Color Nerds Right Handy or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. And on SoundCloud. And on the podcast attic. Wait, I think I stole Ryan's line there. Be sure to rate. Review. And subscribe. We're just horrible people. <laughs> we are horrible. <laughs> Come on back next week for another episode. Till then, keep reading, nerds.